Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Larch, hello. Hi, Annie. How are you? I'm really good, thank you, yeah. Like, uh, but we wouldn't believe that after being down underground for 18 days. But yeah, no, we're, we're doing really good. Spirits are really high. I'm Annie McManus. Welcome to a very special bonus edition of Changes. In the heart of London, right beside one of the city's busiest roads and train stations, is a small patch of green. For the last few months, this patch has been occupied by a group of climate change activists who call themselves HS2 Rebellion. They're protesting here because this green patch is to be turned into a taxi rank for the HS2 scheme. HS2 is the high-speed rail project that is currently in its first phase of production, a rail track from London to Birmingham. Phase two will see more routes from Birmingham up to Manchester and Leeds. HS2 has been a highly controversial scheme. Lots of people protesting against it. Lots of talk and discourse in the news and media about it over the last few years. The pros are a faster journey, larger capacity and better links between the north and the south. The cons are the swelling costs, currently estimated at over £100 billion, the huge disruption to communities and towns up and down the country, and of course the environmental and ecological damage. For example, 108 ancient woodlands will be destroyed. HS2 has promised to replace all the trees with new ones. The climate change activists moved in over two months ago, building structures in trees so they could occupy them to prevent them from being felled. They also built a structure in the middle of the patch of green and inside that kind of ramshackle structure, they started to dig. Fast forward two months and there's a whole network of underground tunnels under this green patch. They are deep, narrow, shored with wood and now occupied with seven people, ranging from teenagers to adults. For the month of February 2021, these tunnels have been the main focus of police, councils and train station security staff and have garnered huge media attention. The government has said that the cost of tackling climate activists at HS2 sites has hit nearly £50 million so far. The bailiffs have evicted all the protesters on the ground and in the trees at this site, but they cannot get to the people in the tunnels. So they surround the tunnels and are trying different methods of being able to get the people out from underground. One of the main protagonists in the tunnels is a 49-year-old man called Larch Maxi. A former sustainability lecturer, he has been an activist since the 90s, doing his first direct action tunnel protest in 1996. His previous job as a tree protector has seen him in a tree for 20 days in Parliament Square and more weeks in a tree in Crackley Wood. He's a father to two children. His son has also been part of the protests against HS2 and Larch tells us about this proudly. I spoke to him on Saturday 13th of February, three days after the group lost its case in the High Court for a right to protest and had been ordered to leave. We spoke around 4.30pm and Larch was still in the tunnel, in the downshaft so he could get good Wi-Fi. It was minus three degrees that day. 
As always in this podcast, we go back to Larcher's childhood to discuss the changes and experiences, both good and bad, that have led to who he is today, fighting for what he believes in in the most extreme way. He talks about his first experience of learning about climate change and the turning point that made him dedicate his life to activism and the emotion of the journey to this point is audible. Expect tears. As we are speaking, he receives a call because new digs are taking place around them to get them out. This is a rare insight into life in the tunnels and exactly why they refuse to leave. This is change making in its most visceral form. Let's go underground and meet Larch Maxi. I'm going to have some very basic questions to start this off. I want you to describe where you are, what can you see. Um, get, get, let, let us kind of get a feel of, of what it's like down there. Yeah, so I'm like 10 foot underground at the bottom of a down shaft. So, uh, and I'm with my head sticking out of our tunnel. As I look out and up, there is loads of carpentry all around me. The shoring that the bailiffs have done. First of all, they reinforced our down shaft and made that quite a tight size. So then they have to dig another separate downshaft. So there's a big space, well, I'll say big, it's like two and a half meters long. And then one little area is about half a meter square. And then the rest of it opens out to a meter by two meters sort of area. Right. And then that goes up 10 foot to uh, up top where there's some bright light shining down on me. And they've got two uh, tripods set up, sort of winches. So if they, if they get the opportunity, they can put one of us in a harness and pull us up. And they are? Um, but the, and they're the bailiffs. That, yeah, they're, so bailiffs. HS2 are carrying out this eviction and they use contractors to do that. So in this case, they're employing the National Eviction Team, which is a, a group of, or part of the High Court Enforcement Group Limited. Right. And Large, how are you, how are you living down there? Just a the very practical, pragmatic ways of living. How are you eating, drinking, bathing, going to the bathroom, toilet, like how is it working down there for you to stay there for 18 days and still be in good spirits? Yeah, so we've, we've basically we've got provisions, so we're managing to keep going on what we've got. Uh, we've got, um, yeah, water and food down here, so it's very, well, it's fairly basic. It's certainly we're, we're kind of rationing ourselves, um, but we've got, you know, a number of different tins and jars and things. So we've, we've opened some pickles recently, which is really nice because then you can mix a little bit of beet, pickled beetroot in with your beans or whatever yeah. and make it a bit more flavourful. We've got olives and sun-dried tomatoes, would you believe? Um, yeah. It's a real treat. Um, we've got some chocolate and stuff as well, so we're not entirely deprived. But we haven't had, like, a hot meal for 18 days. But meals are basic, but really, like, you just so enjoy your food when you, when you don't eat much. You really enjoy what you do get and i feel like your body just absorbs all the nutrients from when you do eat uh, and it feels actually you're on the edge of hunger all the time but actually feel quite healthy uh through that and then toilet yeah we pee in bottles um and women use like a shiwi or a funnel and then um we also pee in poo bags like doggy bags and then bag that up and pass that out so all that yeah. goes out to the to the very kind bailiffs who take that away <laughs> right and how are you physically like are, are you in are you in good health and is everyone down there in good health yeah we're all in good health as I said and good spirits so um a few of us picked up a, a couple of injuries along the way a little like you know one point a bailiff jumped down our down shaft and tried to fill in uh the lock on at the bottom with expanding foam I managed to get my arm in the lock on, um, but in, in that sort of tussle, I got a bit of a scratch on my arm. And mm. a bit of What's the lock on, Large? A lock on is 
something you sink in the ground. Like you, well, it's it's basically a, a tube, generally that you put your arm in and clip yourself to, so it has a bar or, or a fixed piece in the tube that you Got you, fi- you lock yourself to. So you have like a bracelet on of some sort, and you clip yourself to the lock on. Um, and then you can have all sorts of variations on that and elaborations on that. This one was sunk in the ground at the bottom of the downshaft. It was an, a concrete, multi-layered arm tube, so it's got concrete, steel, aluminium, etc. That was sunk in to a load of concrete reinforced with rebar and old tent poles that I reclaimed. And then that was all inside a, a safe that I'd skipped. Like the, the, got the door off the safe, but the rest of it made a really strong box. So that took them... Oh, Thirty about thirty hours to get laser out of that, but yeah. Anyway, so that was a little, a little incident where I got a little injury and um, a few little things like that, but no, nothing major. And everything so far has gone fine. Everyone's fit, healthy, and, and well. And as I said, in, in really good spirits. And laser, one of the people that was down there with you now not there. So how many people are left down there with you in the tunnels? And can you talk me through who is who who who's there? Yeah, so there's uh, seven of us down here now um, in two tunnels. Um, Scotty and another person are in one tunnel. And then uh, there's five of us in this main tunnel. Blue is one of those. She's 18. And Blue um, is Laser's sister, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. She's also an author. She's an incredible activist. She's on permanent school strike, so she's given up school to, um, to be doing this full time. And she's, yeah, just an incredible, inspiring activist and person. And then there's Nemo, who's 22. She just turned 22 and was, spent her 22nd birthday helping create these tunnels, uh, which is pretty impressive commitment. And then uh, there's Dan and his son, Rory. Um, so Dan is uh, also known as Swampy. Uh, and then there's Rory, his 16-year-old son. And it was all Rory's idea. Like Rory's, like saw the tunnel and was like, "Yeah, I really want to come down here for eviction," and persuaded Dan to come down and join him. Dan uh, sort of avoided tunnels for years because he knew once he did it, he'd get the bug. Uh, but he's got the bug again now. <laughs> and are you in close proximity down there? Are you able to to chat and kind of be be near each other? We can be. Yeah. In order to be here with Signal, I'm in the downshaft, so I'm a little bit uh, separated from the others. I mean, the, the tunnels are quite extensive, so um, yeah. we've got areas where we can all be together, but yeah. then there's also area, you know, times when we can't. So often it's about shouting down and relaying messages and that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, how, how are you coping, Larch, with just the, the physical act of not being able to walk? Moving around the tunnel is really a full workout. Um, really? Especially, like, where I am now, it's a really tight part of the tunnel. Yeah. And we had um, lots and lots of heavy rain, and that brought the water table up. So we then had to add a little bit more um, spoil uh, on to make the to raise the level of the tunnel a little bit. So this section I'm in is really quite tight. Um, and then changing someone out, so swapping over, there's two of you got to wriggle past each other in a really tight space. So that is a full-on workout. Um, so just yeah, you, my core strength is like so. It's like a full core workout all the time down here. Um, so yeah, I, do, I am making a point of just moving my legs regularly, um, yeah. just so that they're getting some exercise. Um, and you do push off with your legs and stuff as you move around the tunnel. So it's not like you get no exercise on your legs at all, but it's just different, um, different kinds of exercise. And Larch, can you explain why why you're there now? 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm here because we're in a climate and ecological emergency. I spent 25 years as a scientist in academia, teaching and researching that emergency. And uh, I had to admit, as a scientist facing the facts, that what I would, did was the best as I could do in that position, wrote reports and did, you know, did everything I could do. But it, it hadn't fundamentally stopped the problem. The problem got a lot worse on my watch as I was in academia. I watched it unfold. So 60% of all emissions humanity has ever done have been in the last 20 years alone. So we've known it so clearly and we've made it worse. We've massively exacerbated the problem. And so this, I'm a social scientist, so primarily I study you know, all aspects of climate change, but focusing particularly on social, the social change, like what is necessary to bring about social change. Mm-hmm. The research shows very clearly that civil disobedience and non-violent direct action uh, is a really effective way of bringing about social change at the speed and scale we need. So it's, it's an essential component. So that's why I'm down here, because as a scientist, I had to follow the evidence and the science and the facts which led me to say, well, the jobs I'd created for myself over my life, uh, I love, but I have to give them up because they make sense if we have 10 or 20 years to turn this emergency around. If we've got a matter of months, then I have to do what I can do in those few months that we've got left. And so I devote every day to the best of my ability to try and bring about the changes that we need to address this emergency. So being in this tunnel is the most effective thing I can do right now. Um, and that's demonstrated by the fact that you and I are having this conversation, which I'm absolutely delighted about. Um, and the fact that we are now, you know, starting to shift the Overton window, you know, the, the political space, uh, you know, the, what's discussed and how it's discussed, that is starting to shift. People are, you know, starting to talk about the emergency more. The fact that there was nine of us at the start, the fact that nine people are willing to put themselves in this position, just instinctively people see that gesture they start to go oh it must be serious and they pay attention and their heart goes out and you know and so it starts again question what's going why would they do that what's you know and and i think people increasingly know that the government lied to us and the government have misled us and they've not kept us safe and so what we need is greater and greater awareness of just how terrible the truth is um and so that then you know i'm here specifically to get HS2 cancelled as a matter of urgency so that we can then start to really address the climate and ecological emergency and we can kind of really get that the proper attention and focus on that. All, what we need to do is all pull together to address this emergency. And what changes have occurred so far on this endeavour alone? Like since the start of 2021, obviously there's a lot more media attention. As you say, you and I are talking, lots of people are watching you guys and watching how it's playing out. But what has actually happened practically that has changed how the proceedings are going with HS2? So, um, it's, you know, we haven't had the breakthrough yet of HS2 getting cancelled, but what we have got is, you know, it being discussed on a completely different scale, like, you know, it's a hundred times more media attention than we've ever had before. So it's on the news, it's in all the tabloids, it's, you know, Mm. significant headlines, you know. And so that's really new. The pressure that, therefore, we can bring on HS2 is new. So we've got a court case that's ongoing where, you know, it came out last week that HS2 basically misled the court. Um, You know, they've already had... We've got select committees where they've told, you know, the world that HS2 have misled Parliament... They've, you know, they've, they've lied to the media, they've lied to the public, and now they've lied in court. 
Um, so that's an ongoing, all these things are kind of ongoing, they're from building pressure. Um, so the health and safety executive have criticised them, the way they started the operation of this eviction. They hadn't got the risk assessments, they hadn't got the proper stuff in place. And so they've, on a practical level now, they've got a, mount, um, a mine rescue team here 24 hours a day during this eviction as an emergency in case anything goes wrong. So that's a practical thing that's a good yeah. a good thing that's happened because of that court case. Yeah. Um, they've done certain things which we were asking them to do at the outset. They've now done them because of the pressure <laughs> the public and, and you know, our lawyers have put on them. You know, we've got, we've got this incredible team of lawyers that have all stepped up often that work for pro bono. You know, these are the kinds of things that, that start to shift when you get this media attention and when you get mm. this gesture that people see wow that really speaks to me I want to help what can I do if they're willing to do that what the least I can do is you know offer my time for free or do x y and z you know everyone can play their role wherever you are whatever you whatever you love to do you can do it to help us in this most important challenge you know of cancelling HS2 and turning the climate and ecological emergency around and large is it true that you lost your case in the high court and now they are saying that they are legally able to evict you and and, and are they doing that what's happening there well, I feel like the, the court the court proceedings so far have, have been a, cred, a real victory in, in terms of getting the HN Health and Safety Executive to tell us what had happened. We wouldn't have known. Without the court case, we wouldn't have known that... You know, a, a, it wouldn't have got them on site in the way that it did, and B, it wouldn't have got them to inform us what measures they took and, and exactly how serious they took it and, and the threats they made to HS2. They threatened to close down the whole site... They did actually stop all work twice. Um, so we wouldn't have found that out without the court case. Um, the court case is ongoing, we, you know, so there's, there's an appeal in, in, in process. Um, so I don't feel like that's a lost thing at this point. Um, the background to that is the legal system was created, you know, I, I did law as my undergraduate and I've done a lot of work with legal stuff over the last 20 years of, of campaigning. Um, and the legal system was created as my one of my more enlightened uh, solicitors once gave me a little lecture on, you know, it was basically created in the 17th century to protect property interests. So yeah. that, you know, unlike other countries which have got like a civil code and have got a written constitution and they've got a legal system that's part of a modern democracy, we've got a legal system that, that was part of a feudal um, system. And so, you know, it's fundamentally there to protect property. So... Of course, that legal system, and, and it, we, we currently don't have a law of ecocide on the books. We don't have a legal system that's capable of dealing with this climate and ecological emergency yet. Until we get the climate and ecological emergency bill passed and a law of ecocide on the books, you know, it's going to be virtually impossible to get legal cases that actually help us address this emergency. Of course, that's one of the things we need is a legal system that can help us address this emergency. But I think most desperately we need a political system and an economic system that can, and a media system. So we need to change those uh, mm. systems. So the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, I think, is a vital part of that, where you know, it would get the, the um, Prime Minister to declare an emergency rather than just Parliament as a whole, and to actually start to use the media and the, and the information, you know, the, the channels for information that they have, that we've seen them use in COVID, you know, is a great example. Like you, you do anything and you get this COVID information. It's like the climate and ecological emergency is way, way more serious than even COVID. Um, and it, it should be given way, way more treatment and focus. Um, so once that starts to happen, things will shift, you know. And so that's one practical thing people can do is, is lobby their MP 
to support the climate and ecological emergency bill. It's a live bill before Parliament. Um, we've got nearly 100 MPs supporting already, which is unprecedented for a private member's bill. And as a private member's bill, you've got very you know long odds on getting it passed. But we are in such desperate times that anything's possible. And if enough people lobby their MPs hard enough, and that doesn't mean just sending an email to your MP, it means contacting your MP, arranging to speak to them because it's COVID and you can't have a face-to-face meeting. It means getting the information clear, explaining it to them, getting your friends to do the same, keep get, keep meeting week after week until they finally get it and they realise that you know, this isn't a political issue, a party political issue, this is a matter of survival and, and then they'll support it. You know, everyone, if enough people do that, we will get the bill passed. You know. Lodge, you talk about your 20 years of activism. What, what was the turning point for you to actually devote your full-time career uh, to, to doing this kind of direct action type of work? So there's two key moments. One was when I was 13 and I had a school project uh, to look at acid rain in 1985, and I remember it very clearly. Get emotional sorry I'm um don't worry listen yeah. don't worry get it all out <laughs> get it all out you're in a tunnel for 18 days I think you're allowed to have a little cry <laughs> so um yeah just as a child seeing the, the death of the forests that acid rain was causing in the, in the 80s for from sulfur dioxide and the burning of coal and that just moved me I just felt this heart connection to nature and to that you know that clearly was wrong and then I just um, been studying ever since, and and like learning more and more. And the more you learn, and for me, I, I I'm not someone who can hold information as a, just an academic exercise. Ironically, although I've been an academic for 25 years, for me, uh, if if I know something, then I I'm going to and it, and it makes sense, then I'm going to act on it. And so it was a a gradual process the more I found out the more I took action and I ended up doing a master's in uh, European environmental policy which was in a geography department and discovered that oh I'm a geographer because no one in my family had ever been to university so I got no real advice on what to do at uni so my undergrad I did law because I thought naively that would empower me where you stand in the legal system which is useful but uh, I'm a geographer, and so I discovered that with my master's, and then I learned about climate change, and I learned that that's the issue that trumps all the other issues. So in 1993, that was the second moment, really, when I was like, wow, this is so serious. Um, and at the same time, I had an incredible lecturer who uh, told me all about transport policy and how more road building encourages more car use, and it's a major contributor to climate change. And so... Uh, and also said, and by the way, the biggest new start uh, of the, n- the next year is just down the road. Why don't you guys go and do something about it? So I ended up taking a year out of my master's to, to work, to live full time on, on a road camp. Because um, I realised we started the campaign uh, just thinking we'd do it at weekends, but it needed someone to hold it, to be there you know, day in, day out. So me and another friend, actually, we both took a year out of our degrees to do that. Um, and so that was an amazing, successful part of the anti-roads movement. And while we were doing that campaign between '94 and '95, the government did a U-turn on the roads program, um, and we even had a leak saying that the anti-roads movement had been, you know, a key part of of that U-turn. 
So it was a very wow. um, rare opportunity to see that the direct action that we were taking had a direct impact in changing policy. Um, interestingly, they've been trying to resurrect that same merge program ever since, and have ju- you know just announced recently they were going to do it, and now that's being challenged because they haven't done sort of due diligence of properly assessing the environmental impact. I mean, how can a government that's trying to be a world leader and host COP pro- propose a massive £27 billion road building programme in a climate emergency? You know, it's just completely unjustifiable. And so that sh- that they're going to review that decision, hopefully. Um, so j- let's just go back to, to kind of being 13, discovering yeah. this acid rain thing. I'm, I'm interested a bit more in just kind of how your life as a child shaped who you are today. We, we, you know, you seem someone who is so um, uh, absolute in your convictions, you know, just so willing to give everything of yourself in everything I've seen of you. Um, and I'm wondering, like, just h- how you how you are shaped to be that person as an adult. Um, you talked a, a little bit in, in the previous answers you gave us for the questions about going through some major operations as a kid. What was all that about? Oh, um, I mean, I had a, I fractured my skull when I was a, a kid playing football. Um, I, I did karate and uh, got kicked in the balls and had twisted testicles and had to get them pinned down. Um, so those are the two operations. Uh, I broke loads of bones. Yeah, I, was, I was very active as a kid. Broke 13 bones, I think, between the age of uh, was it nine and... 13 wow. or something like that so wow. uh, yeah so I threw myself into everything yeah and um, really loved sports and I still do very always been very active um, and do you look back at your childhood fondly yes absolutely yeah yeah, yeah I mean the, the, the cornerstone of it is you know two two amazing parents you know yeah we didn't have a lot growing up but hello can yeah, you hear me yeah I, I can yeah yeah yeah, so we didn't have a lot growing up, but um, I realised that I have a really privileged childhood in the sense that I had unconditional yeah. love. So that gave me the freedom. Unconditional love from, from my yeah. parents. And so that gave me the freedom to explore, you know, and throw myself into things. And, I've, you know, I'm 48, so I've spent a lot of time living and being with different people and different groups and organizations and learned so much about and studied you know people and how people work and i just see that i see so many times how people are held back because they have they've got this innate fear of the world or of themselves or other people or you know whatever you know and i'm i've always um because i've got that grounding in, in, in you know feeling safe in the world I feel like that's been a vital part of me being able to explore and be myself and they just give me complete permission to be who I am and complete support in, in the choices that I make. You mentioned in your answer that you had to fight off bullies as well as a kid. Oh, to fight off bullies, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was, the, you know, it was, a, it was a... I was born in Kettering, which is a small town in, in Northamptonshire, you know, and it was rough when I was growing up and, you know, I remember I was seven, you know, going home crying to lunchtime to my mum because a kid was trying to bully, you know, a couple of years older than me trying to bully me and um, you know, after a few days my uncle was around and I said look what, what should he do and and uh, yeah my uncle said well do, do you think do you think you could you know stand up to yourself and I said yeah so, so the next time he tried to bully me I just you know <laughs> I um I hit him and I think I ran <laughs> I ran home crying <laughs> even though I'd hit him. 
but um, that was, you know, a seven, so that was a young sort of experience. And yeah, there's a few times, the, the, the sort of last fight I ever got in was, I'd started doing karate at that point, so I was much more confident in my body and physically. And a guy was picking on me again, a year older, and I'd got a broken collarbone from playing rugby. And so there's this kid who's a year older than me, picking on me and ended up starting this fight with me. And there's all the kids in the playground, of course, supporting me because I'm younger. And injured, you know, but uh, I managed to hold my own, and um, yeah, that was sort of, you know, knowing that I could, you know, like, unfortunately, when you know faced with bullies, sometimes you have to, you have to fight back, um, and I think that's kind of <laughs> actually what we're doing now, you know, like this government um, and HS2 are good examples of using bullying tactics. You know, they've they've not kept us safe; they've put us in danger. And we're having to fight back, and and then now we're fighting back with you know, peaceful means, you know, non-violence, because mm. uh, that, you know, at this point seems to be the most effective way of trying to bring about the change. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Larch, what would you say is the biggest change you've been through as an adult? Yeah, good question. I think, um, I mean, there's two that stand out. One is that I've been... I've been doing uh, some work with an organisation called Balanced View and that's been incredibly empowering. It's just changed the way I relate to all the incidents that life throws up, the challenges life throws up. It's given me this incredible resilience and ability to see the benefit in any situation and see the beauty in every person um, and try and support everyone to be optimally beneficial. So that's probably the single biggest change is, is doing that work with them. Um, and Larch, sorry, just just um, get a bit of clarity. So they're called Balance View, and what do they do? This organisation. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of um, it's a support network supporting people to empower themselves and each other. Yeah, to come kind of right. recognise that we're all connected and that there's there's you know there's yeah. part of us that is just perfect as we are. We don't have to change anything. But what we, you know by relaxing with whatever comes up, we can actually take the power from any experience and. and see it as a beneficial opportunity rather than 
you know, see ourselves as a victim or blame and shame other people or try and avoid our emotions or, you know. So I think that's vital in me being able to face the climate emergency because we're all in some sort of soft denial with the climate emergency because it's so painful to really start looking at it. But because I've got this training with balanced view, I'm able to feel, you know, all of the emotions that that brings up and and not shy away from it and still kind of go still kind of show up and go yeah and today i'm going to do this to try and address it mm. and so then the, the other big change i think as an adult is is yeah when, when as my son who i was a single parent looking after him um from when he was 13 and as he kind of hit you know adulthood uh i was able to sort of increasingly step back into being a full-time activist and um you know because i put my activism into parenting primarily for sort of 20 years um, and so that's been a massive change and, and, and just um, yeah, that led me to giving up both my jobs to work full time, to volunteer full time on the climate emergency and so that's a big plunge into the unknown because you know what if we don't succeed what if, you know where, how am I going to pay the bills what, if, you know, what about my future you know people at my age are starting to think about settling down and getting pension and all that whereas I've done the opposite I've just sort of put everything I've got into trying to save our future because without some sort of change in the next few months the chances of my children living to my age start to get very short you know very slim and I, that's just intolerable for me as a parent to sort of think about that and to, to face that and, and, and as a parent and as someone who loves all people and all, all life you know to see what we're already doing right now, you know, a thousand children will die today because of climate change. They're the most vulnerable people on the planet. And, uh, you know, a hundred species will go extinct today because of, you know, what we're doing to nature. And increasingly climate change is going to accelerate that process. These things to me are just, you know, absolutely what I try and can bring to my mind and heart every day to motivate myself and to keep myself focused. Given those things, what am I going to do today? Lodge, how do your children feel about where you are now and, and what you're doing? So my son... <laughs> you're definitely going to get me crying now. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, actually, my son introduced me to you. Um, he is a big fan. And he's got a great taste in music. Oh, and wow. so have you. Um, <laughs> so my son is here with me on the campaign. He's he's just incredible. Part of the reason I'm in London is because he's here in London. He had a he had a massive life changing imp, imp, incident, um, which was his best friend who lived with us like a brother and, and a son in the house died tragically in a skateboard accident. Um, and so that pushed him. I'm so sorry. Yes, yeah, so, but that pushed him to leave Devon where we were living, and um, and and so I partly want to be around him to support him but just really so happy that he's discovered activism as well now uh, this year or last year and he's just incredible so we're, we're totally um in this together um and in different ways and you know just supporting each other in our own path within it you know um but that's just uh, just incredible yeah and, and my daughter is a little bit older she's at um university she's also like me she loves plants and nature and she's studying um yeah plant plant biology and, <clears throat> and garden designs so yeah she's she really supports what i'm doing large i've i've um in kind of like just looking you up and, and looking at videos and stuff and, and seeing what you've done before in terms of your activism um 
I mean, I, I watched a four-hour live stream of you from the top of a tree in Crackley Wood, um, <laughs> that, uh, and cried when you interviewed this this other activist called Carl, who was telling you his his story about being in care and growing up in care, and yeah, uh, just how yeah. he ended up there. And he spoke so articulately about how he felt like he had found this new family in terms of of, of the people that he was protesting alongside. And yeah. I wanted to ask, how does it change you being part of such a passionate group who are so extreme in their beliefs uh, that they would dedicate their life to them? Yeah, well, it's a life-changing experience to be working with people like that. You know, that that's why the, the year I took out of my master's was a life-changing year, it was because of the people I worked with and the experiences I had that year. Um, and it, yeah, it changed me forever and really shaped this course that I'm on. I've been a full-time activist since then. Um, as I said, although uh, for 20 years I sort of put that primarily focused on my, on my parenting, on my kids. Um, yeah, it's, it was it was kind of inevitable I'd be back here <laughs> from from then on. So yeah, it's just and and like being this. So I've, I've had and blessed with so many amazing experiences and, and meeting and working with so many amazing people. Um, and then this experience now down the tunnel for 18 days is a whole new level again, you know, like just living and working so closely with these people who are so de de devoted, you know, mm. but just, all, but you know, everyone on the, all of the camps against HS2, and all, you know, all the people I've been working with, you know, before that with Extinction Rebellion and with other organisations and movements, just seeing people's giving, volunteering their time, you know, I think that makes such a difference because you're all volunteering your time, you're all in together. And there's, there's no blaming and shaming because everyone's just doing their best. You know, it's, uh, it's really, really beautiful, really powerful experience. Is this is this the longest you've been um, in, in an extreme direct action situation, or have you been up a tree or, or, or in yeah, a tree for longer? Of twenty days is my longest so far. Uh, twenty right. days up a tree in Parliament Square without coming down. So yeah, technically I've got a couple of days to go. Uh, before that <laughs> but this is on a different level I, the, the first week um, was probably toughest down here just adjusting to it and I remember thinking the first week thinking wow a week down here is harder than 20 days in a tree um, having said that it's definitely got easier the more we got used to it and we got into a routine and we just you know like yeah so um, yeah I just I am we're all kind of really appreciating the fact that we can be down here and, and make this stand and try and make a difference on this crucial issue the other great thing about working with these people like this is when you're holding the truth of the climate and ecological emergency if you if you do that alone it's just so hard so to do it with other people is just is vital you know i really really encourage people to to to, to face the truth and to let that truth in but to support themselves as we do that so that not to be on your own with it and there are increasingly many many people starting to, to do that on whatever level we can it's a journey we all it's our own individual journey of letting that truth in everyone's got to do it at the speed they can you know but i do think it's vital that we all do it to the, as much as we can and then keep that progressively letting it in more and more because only when we do that will we actually take appropriate action to address this emergency mm. It feels like there's a threshold that you cross kind of psychologically when you when you take on the truth that you're talking about, when you actually allow it uh, to to exist in all of its uh, horror and, and kind of really just 
face it and confront it and then have to live with it it feels like that's a big uh step in the kind of evolution that that you've had to make as a as, as an activist absolutely yeah yeah that i mean it's 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 a it's a, it's a it's a bit of a trick really because it sounds so simple and it is like this, this process of you know tell the truth and act as if it's real um it's so simple and like who wouldn't agree with that but because of where we're at because of what we've done for the last 50 years and in the last 20 in particular it's the most difficult thing in the world because that truth is so painful I was thinking about it the other day and thinking you know you could not devise a horror story storyline that is more horrific than what we are doing now you know you've got this situation where the most horrendous outcomes are coming down the line you know like mass starvation and death and suffering you know not just humans but potentially all of life and it's being caused by the most innocent inane stupid thing because we want to consume some stupid stuff because that's what we've been told to do so literally people are doing their duty to you know live the life they've been told to live by the, the capitalist consumerist system and in doing that, are bringing about this unseen death and suffering. It's just, I, you know, can you, seriously, Annie, can you think of a worse horror storyline than that? Mm. I know. Like, what would you say to the people, uh, you know, who are kind of, who might be listening to this thinking, you know, why can't you be doing this in a democratic way? Think of the amount of millions of pounds it's cost the council and the government in order to have you guys there and keep you safe, as you're saying, there's mine... Uh, rescue teams there's all sorts of bailiffs and you know for, for those people who are like you know why are you costing the government more money you know why can't you do this in a democratic way what would you say well this is what I've studied for 25 years this is exactly what I've studied and the re unfortunately the the democratic the, you know we, we've got a very weak emaciated form of democracy what we need is is direct democracy where people really directly shape the decisions and we need deliberative democracy where the people shaping those decisions have the information at their disposal when we've got a direct deliberative democracy then we have a democracy capable of dealing with this crisis what we've got at the moment is an emaciated corrupt form of democracy which has led to this terrible circumstance we're in now so I think if I, I understand, we get that. I get that all the time. People say, "Oh, you know, like you say, like we get a judge saying, oh, Parliament voted for HS2.'" Well, then you you scratch the surface and you look. The Parliament voted for a scheme that was a fraction of the cost of what HS2 is going to cost. They did that without all the information about how destructive it's going to be. They did that before we had a climate and ecological emergency and before we were in a COVID pandemic. And every community that was consulted said no. And they were road roughshod over. So you start to unpick what it means, this democratic, supposedly democratic process, and it fails us. HS2 is a great example of what's wrong with our democracy. But it's not just HS2. It's you, you can look at the road programme that I mentioned earlier, the fact that that's being promoted supposedly by our democracy in a, in a time when mm. that's going to, you know, accelerate our, our, our death, potentially, you know. So the, there's a fundamental principle in, in political science, which is that, you know, we give away some of our power to the government in order for the government to keep us safe. You know, this is the basic social contract that Hobbes based political science on, modern, modern democracy with a modern state. 
And that social contract has been broken by our government. They have not kept us safe. They have known and they have lied to us and misled us and allowed us to get into this situation. And that same government system that has created this crisis is not capable of getting us out of it. So that's why we need this Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill and a Citizens' Assembly to get us out of this, which is direct democracy, which is deliberative democracy. Ordinary people with all the information at their disposal, selected like you have a jury selection, so it's it's across the board, it represents every ordinary people. That That is capable of getting us out of it. If, if, a, if we had a citizens' assembly looking at the future of HS2, I would come out of this tunnel. You know, if I, I don't even need the government to say, yeah, we're going to cancel HS2. All I need is a genuine process that, to look at it <clears throat> properly, <clears throat> like a citizen, mm. citizen's assembly. So I'm all for democracy, uh, but I'm, unfortunately we don't have a, a, a democracy that's fit for purpose yet in this country. Do you think that you have more power now in 2021 to affect change than you have had in the past. I'm just conscious of Swampy, you know, who's in there, who's, you know, kind of um, the most well-known activist in, in our country. And he's he's been through decades, as you say, of, of activism. And I'm interested that even though technology has evolved so much and, you know, we're in this world, uh, like, you know, where every way that we communicate it has changed, it's still this very basic physical act of literally standing, or in your guy's case, crawling or lying, in the way of control, that is actually, seems to be the most effective. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a yes and yes and no, really. So, yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. It's a really um, great question, and it's absolutely true that the d- d- digital world only takes us so far. Virtual reality is only going to take us so far. We still need to grow food. We still need to breathe air and drink water. Um, and we have bodies that you know exist in a real environment. And so, uh, putting our bodies on the line, digging these tunnels—that that's yeah—is still the act that's made all the difference. But the you know the context now is different. You know, like I can have this conversation with you whilst in the tunnel. Swampy couldn't do yeah. that back in the nineties. You know. Um, so the opportunities are there for us now to, to turn this emergency around. You know, we've got social media, we've got this potential, you know, control or access to media channels that we didn't have before. And, and so let's use that, you know. Um, but we really need to be, like, getting on the case with using it because otherwise, like, you know, the corporate control of that, all of those media streams is also happening. And so we need to be very aware of that and trying to counter that as we go. Larch, when all this is over and you come out of the tunnel eventually, what what does life look for, look like for you? Like, how do you live your normal life at the moment with no no job, no income? Well, I'm working flat out. I'm working harder than I ever have. Um, you know, I, I'm often doing 18-hour days. Sometimes I'd like do a 36-hour shift where I just keep going until I go. Oh, I'm ready to sleep now. I'm pouring my every literally every waking moment into this. And so that will carry on, you know. I, after, immediately after this, I will get arrested. I will go probably to court uh, very briefly, like for a day or two, and, and then I'll be released. And then I'll be doing, hopefully we'll do loads of media work. And at some point I'll go and see my partner because I've not seen her for, you know, since December. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll see my, my daughter and my son. And, and, but my son and I were on the phone till like 1.30 this morning. Uh, planning because <laughs> he's like he's so like feeling frustrated that he's not down here that he's he was up a tree but he got evicted from it I mean he bless him he held out longer than 
you know anyone else up the trees but he's you know feeling like well, I want to I want to be like yeah wants to help wants to do more so we've already started planning some plans of what we do next <laughs> so uh yeah it's definitely going to be more of the same until you know it has to be more of the same until we get the changes needed and the key is getting more people involved so that's the bottom line is I spend a lot of my time trying to support people to get involved you know that's why I'm willing to you know go to the lengths to actually try and make this phone call happen in the middle of an eviction um, mm. and credits to the bailiff actually the, the bailiffs have um, given us a bit of peace and quiet so really I do acknowledge that they are uh, helping as well They're, in the ways that they can you know yeah and for those people who are listening thinking that they're inspired and they want to help and they want to do something like in terms of the life that you live you know I'm just trying to get to the bottom of how that actually works when you are working 18 hour days 36 hours you know <laughs> how, how, how are you that's, how that's, are you, how you looking after yourself large is someone looking after you yes well this is why I've, I've spent the last 13 years devoting myself to this balanced view practice so I just spent all night last night listening to talks and, and writing to my you know, teacher. Um, uh, yeah, there's this incredible support network that's all, all available for free. So I, I use that and I find that so supportive. Um, I've tried all sorts of other things over the years, um, but that's what I find works for me. So, you know, yeah. I'm not suggesting other people do <laughs> the kind of shifts that I put in but I'm just as, or, or do it in the way that I'm doing it you know everyone has to find their path what I definitely urge everyone to do to their best of their ability is to tell the truth um, to look into the science and the facts of the climate and ecological emergency to look at what we're doing what's at stake which is everything we love and based on that let stripping away the soft denial that we all have and letting that truth in take action from that place and and the beauty of this is everyone can start wherever you're at and there are you know there are actions it can because the first action could just be watching some videos um or finding out some information but then just progressively day by day just deepening that practice so that we're all working together wherever anyone's starting whatever anyone loves to do you can do it in service to this it's the most important job you know any of us could ever do is to try and save humanity that's how serious things are now um, so that's what I would encourage everyone to do. Sorry, an another call was coming in. Are you still there? <laughs> yeah, still Great, here. sorry about that. That's the guy that's ringing because they've been today. They've been doing something slightly dangerous and digging a, a new downshaft in part, potentially coming onto one of our tunnels, which would be really dangerous. So he was just ringing. So they're they're digging these downshafts and tunnels parallel to yours in order to try and get you guys out. Is yes, that the case? exactly. So they've been trying to get us out for eighteen days, and and now they're sort of getting a, a little bit desperate again and trying something which isn't standard practice which isn't what they should be doing i think they're trying to cut corners and, and, and rush it even though they've been saying it's not you know not it's about safety not speed uh there's no way they should be doing what they're doing right now today they you know they're digging a down shaft um potentially over a tunnel potentially endangering our lives what they should be doing is coming in where up the point where a place where i'm speaking to you from they should be coming in through there which is the opening to the tunnel i don't know why they're not doing that large how long do you think you'll last down there realistically 
as, as long as it takes. Realistically, we should never be in this crisis. The reality of where we're at is it's like tragic, it's horrific, you know, it's like, honestly, <laughs> the more we strip away uh, the soft denial that we all have and face that truth, the more things are open up and go, okay, well, then, you know, so what if I lose everything I've, I've spent my life earning, you know, and saving and, and, and building up? Because none of it's gonna exist in a few years if we don't stop this emergency, you know? So I, I am willing to do, stay here as long as I, as it, long as it takes, you know, until they get me out. And that might mean running out of food and water. It might mean, I, I don't know, I'm hoping it won't, you know? I'm hoping that they'll allow food and water at some point, but um, they're not allowing any at the moment. So yeah, we're definitely going to go on longer than it has done at the moment. Last question before I let you go, and it's the same question we ask everyone on this podcast: is is what change would you like to see for the world looking forwards? I would love to see a world of connection where people are connected with themselves, with each other, with the natural world, where we're connected to our own innate beneficial potency each of us you know loves to be of benefit no one gets up in the in the morning thinking how much suffering can they cause everyone gets up thinking they're going to do their best today and i would love a world where we're all so deeply connected with that that we solve all the problems <laughs> that we currently face and we have a world of just beautiful human and, and natural flourishing you know Large, thank you so much for your time and effort to make this interview happen <laughs> under you. the ground in the middle of London in a tunnel. Yeah, it's really something. It's, it's a story in itself. I won't tell you now, but yeah, it's been quite a thing today. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate I really you. Appreciate I appreciate you. It. No, I feel seen by you. Thank you. <laughs> Whoa, what an experience, what an insight, what a conversation with Large Maxi. After we finished formally recording, a bailiff who was standing at the top of the downshaft complimented Larch on how articulate he was. Let us know what you thought of Larch and please share the podcast far and wide. We put in some links in the notes if you want to support the Tunnelers or the Climate and Ecological Climate Bill. And also, if you're interested in what that organisation was that Larch was talking about, we put a little link for that as well. It's called Balanced View. I really enjoyed this conversation. It felt so exciting um, and just interesting to get a view of Larch Maxi underground in this very intense and extreme situation, trying to make change in his way. That's what this podcast is all about. Change the ones that have defined us and the ones that we want to affect to make the world a better place. Thank you for listening. There's plenty more to come in this series. You loved Khalees, by the way. Thank you to Lou Blakey on Apple Podcasts, who said, what a fabulous podcast. Always loved Khalees. She's such an amazingly talented woman and I love her outlook on life. Katrina Whelan, so truly independent in mind and spirit. Great interview. Samantha Odessa, loved it too. She said, I literally laughed out loud. Brilliant truth throughout. Loads of people called her a powerhouse. Jules Von Hepp said, okay, so we need Khalees to do a TED Talk. Yeah, we do, don't we? Mind you, that episode was kind of it, wasn't it, Jules? Thank you for the comments. They mean so much. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. I'll be back next Monday with Travis Alabanza. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with research from Leila Simone Springer through Rethink Audio. See you next time.
Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.